We come to the uh, conclusion of our summer series looking at the Lord's Prayer, and we're turning to First Chronicles. Wait a second, that's not the Lord's Prayer? Why aren't we turning to Matthew 6? Well, good question. We'll answer it in a moment. So for now, First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 through 13. And we will address that question right out the gate after hearing God's word to us. This is uh, David uh, praying in the assembly of God's people as they've just given offerings and provided in, in a, um, um, an amazing way for the building of the future temple. And here's what David says. It's on page 357, by the way, in the Pew Bible. 357. Beginning in verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens And in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. So as we reach this final installment and we're looking at the Lord's Prayer, you know, we're immediately faced with a question and you, you really are struck with it if you're looking essentially at any translation of the scriptures that is not um, King James, new or otherwise. And that question is, what happened to that doxology we know and love? Because if you're reading the ASV or the NIV or ASV, it's not there. The prayer simply ends at the petition we looked at last week, lead us not into temptation, um, but deliver us from evil. And it relegates that doxology, for thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory, forever and ever, amen, to a footnote. You know, you might look down and see in the fine print, and it says some manuscripts include that, but they don't have it um, in the actual text of the, the Bible. So what does that mean? Well, we need to just keep a few things in mind. So this is Um, This is interesting. Trust me, don't be bored. But before we get into the meat of the sermon, I just want to explain what's going on here. You need to know that your Bible didn't drop out of heaven in English. Um, That's not how it works. Um, Rather, the Bible that you have in your hands, whatever version it is, has been carefully edited together from hundreds of manuscripts uh, that have been passed down and collected Uh, for centuries and centuries, and those manuscripts are in a variety of languages, namely Greek, um, Hebrew, and some Aramaic. Uh, And the older a manuscript is, generally, the more accurate it is. The older it is, the more accurate it is. Um, Why? Because it's closer to that time in which it's writing about. So if Jesus lived in, you know, or died around 30, 33 A.D., then a, a book written about his life from 100 A.D. is considered to be generally more accurate than one that would have been written 300 A.D. Something that's closer to the source material is considered more accurate. So what's happened is that the oldest of manuscripts that we have 
do not contain this doxological phrase, for yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. It's not found in the oldest, most trustworthy manuscripts. Um, that explains why church fathers like Cyprian, Tertullian, and Augustine, guys that you read, I'm sure, all the time and care about all the time, uh, but they, they come from the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries, respectively. They act like they've never seen this. When they talk about the Lord's Prayer, they don't mention the doxology because it wasn't in the manuscripts that they had um, at their time. However, there were other sources from different parts of the world that did have it. So John Chrysostom, who is also 4th century, roughly a contemporary of Augustine, he does write on and preach on this concluding doxology in the Lord's Prayer. Now, he comes from the Eastern Church, though. They would have used Greek manuscripts. Augustine comes from the Western Church, Latin manuscripts. So it does seem like depending from where, when, where you came from or what culture you're in, you might have had access, you might not have. So there is a discrepancy. We'll, we'll put it that way. There is a discrepancy, to be sure. Does this doxology, is it uh, original to Matthew's Gospel? The consensus, though, among essentially all biblical scholars today is is that this doxology was added years later. It was not original to Matthew's um, book. Uh, It perhaps added as a liturgical element that aided Christians in their piety and in their prayers, their devotions, even if that would have been really early on. Here's another interesting resource, the didache, the didache, that that means the, the teaching. It was actually like the first... Um, uh, church uh, order of service that we have from the early church, and it's kind of listed out, you know, this is the way that we should do. We're going to open with a hymn, and then we do a prayer and all this. And in the didache, and that comes from the second century, it mentioned using this doxology. So um, it seems like even the, the early church was used to praying this Uh, doxology, whether they said that it was original to Matthew or they added it in because they thought it was helpful. Either case, the church has been using this for thousands of years. So a debate on the validity and the superiority of various manuscripts will wait for another day. That's all the boring historical stuff we're going to do. That's it, okay? Uh, Of course, you can come up to me and complain later about why your version is better than the one we use. That's fine, too. I'll allow that for today. But Despite the disagreement on the text of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, why, here's the question, why do essentially all Christians still use that doxology? We use it every Sunday here, even though we have the ESV in our, in our Purex. We say it every Sunday morning, we say the Lord's Prayer, and we conclude, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Why do churches, Christians all over the world, pray this doxology? Well, tradition would have to to play a part in that, right? It would have to, certainly. Um, But beyond that, I want to suggest to you tonight that this conclusion is kept for three reasons. First, it's biblically faithful. Second, it's theologically truthful or accurate. And thirdly and finally, it is practically helpful. So it's biblically faithful, it's theologically truthful, and it's practically helpful. Let's consider that tonight. First, what I mean when I say that that this close, this doxology, is biblically faithful, is that even if it might not be in Matthew, it is not introducing anything that we don't find elsewhere in Scripture. There are no new ideas in this doxology. And, and not only that, but there is something, if you look at, at the biblical writers as a whole, you see that they are so often um, 
drawn to doxology, to praise. As they're writing about Jesus, as they're writing about God, it's almost like they just have to take a moment and stop and, you know, just uh, pardon me, I just got to praise God right now. Doxology is natural to biblical writing. This is a faithful way in which the writers of Scripture come to talk about God. It's like they knew him so well that they couldn't help but praise him, but exalt in him. There's a lesson there for us, isn't there? Is, is our life doxological? Do we know God in such a way that we need to burst out in praise and in thanksgiving and saying, you know, Lord, you are so good that you deserve all honor, all glory, all power. You, you deserve it all. And I just want to say it right now. And I just want to live like that. We read it in the Bible, that kind of doxological impulse bursting out of the writer's of the scriptures, the question is, do people read it in your life? And they look at your life, they examine your life, would they say this person lives a life of doxology? They love to praise their God. Consider a few passages. You can write them down or just listen. Or I wouldn't suggest turning to them because I'm going to breeze through real quick. But consider these passages in the Bible in which we hear an echo of the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. 1 Timothy 1.17 to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 6.15 He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. 2 Timothy 4.18 The Lord, Paul writes, will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Or the conclusion to Jude, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Or these from Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory... And honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And then Revelation 5.13, John says, he hears every creature saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Why are these people praising God? That's a really important question for you to ask if your life is lacking doxology. If you find that adoring God is difficult for you. We see it really comes down to two main things. One, who God is. Right? He's the king. He's the immortal and invisible and the only God. He is the only sovereign who God is, but secondly, what he has done. Paul says, he will rescue me from every evil. He will bring me safely into his kingdom. How about from Revelation, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. What lamb are they singing about? Well, it's the lamb that we just read of, or they, we, it's just described for us the chapter before that. The lamb 
that is slain yet standing. It's Jesus Christ, died but raised for you. If your life is lacking that sort of love for God that just can't be suppressed and has to be articulated in song and in praise, might I suggest to you, you perhaps have not captured what he has done for you. And I really do believe that has to be the starting place. Who God is won't mean a whole lot until you know what he's done. And what he has done is that he took on flesh and blood and lived a miserable life, suffering every soulish torment that you can't even imagine. And he did it for you. He did it for you. And then you think, and who is this? This is the only king, the sovereign Lord, the God who made the world, did that for me? Are you able to say that tonight? Is he your savior? He is the savior. Whatever you think about him is not going to change that. He is the savior. Is he your savior? Isn't that a wonderful thing to know? I hope you know if you're lost in your sin, you could have come in this morning, or this evening, excuse me, only knowing God as, some, uh, as, a, uh, as someone who is a Savior. He's not mine, he's somebody else's. But you could leave tonight saying, he's my Savior. And when that clicks, you will praise him. Your life will be filled with doxology. Just as is true for the, the lives of these Biblical writers, and to that list that I read, we could add the text that we already have looked at from First Chronicles with David's um, prayer of praise. That's the passage that most closely resembles the, the um, doxology in the Lord's Prayer. We find all three elements of it there, the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And not only that, but it's embedded inside a prayer. This is how David prays. It should go without saying, though, that the Bible wants us to praise God. And so we're faithful to the biblical pattern when we speak to God in praise. When we come to him, not only in petition, which is a little easier, but in praise. For that reason, this is a good doxology for us to pray. Matthew Henry put it like this. The best pleading with God is praising of him. It is the way to obtain further mercy as it qualifies us to receive it. In all our addresses to God, it's fitting that praise should have a considerable share. It becomes us to be copious in praising God. A true saint never thinks he can speak honorably enough of God. In other words, um, you know, if you, if you think about the, the helpful rubric for prayer, Acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, act, um, adoration, A, that's not just something you check off the list. Okay, I prayed for one minute adoration. Check, I can move on. No, Matthew Henry says, the true saint says, I can never adore him enough. I can never praise him enough. And so the best pleading with God is praising of him. So we see that having a doxology embedded into our prayers is faithful to this biblical pattern of praise. Uh, but then this this doxology specifically for yours is the kingdom the power the glory forever um it's it's helpful because it is it's theologically truthful that's the second thing it's theologically accurate 
And in one sense, it doesn't say anything new that Jesus hasn't already taught us thus far in the prayer, but it serves as a very important reinforcement of some of the theology that we had prayed for thus far. So three things that are highlighted, kingdom, power, glory. If you don't understand that these things are God's, then you will have a deficient understanding of who he is. So let's take them each in turn briefly. First, God is not just a king, he is the king. His is the kingdom. Not just a particular region of government influence, but his rule and his reign is over everything. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. The kingdom is that sovereign control of God over the world here and the world to come. Chris Austin writes um, that uh, when we... Uh, praise God as king, we are acknowledging that only our help can come from him. Rather than just having the kingdom, his is also the power. If you think about kings, monarchs, rulers throughout history, they've been more or less effective, right? Um, We can think of some of the more ceremonial monarchies in the world today as Examples of largely impotent leaders. They're just kind of there for show. Kind of like, you know, the garnish and the uh, mashed potatoes you get. Get that green stuff off, right? I I don't need that. That's not what I'm here for. That's kind of like kings and queens today. Uh, They're just there for show. What about God? God is not just a king. He's a king who has power. He's a king who actually does things. By praying that yours is the power, we are again undergirding our earlier petition, your will be done. Your will be done. A.W. Pink says this, He who cannot do what he will and perform all that he pleases cannot be God. But that is who God is. He is the one who can perform all that he wills. Why? Because he's powerful. And he's not just pretty powerful, he's omnipotent. He is all the power. Yours is the power. Not some, not most. Power belongs to God, Psalm 62, 11. And so since God is over all things, and since he has the ability to do all things, it is right to affirm that all praise should be directed to him. Yours is the glory. The glory. The very fact that we praise proof that we ourselves are weak and we need Somebody who is not limited like us. We need an infinite being to come to our aid. And so because that's true, all glory must be directed away from ourselves into him. Psalm 115, right? Not to us, O God, not to us, but to you alone be the glory. This description of glory to God is most appropriate in our prayers, lest we slip into that endless stream of of self-absorbed petitions. So I mentioned that you know, each of these uh, doxolo- doxological uh, points of entry are really connected back to an earlier petition. So yours is the power connects with your will be done, right? It undergirds that petition. And the praise of saying uh, yours is the kingdom undergirds the earlier petition, your kingdom come. And to say yours is the glory undergirds what we said at the very beginning of the prayer, right? That he is the one whose name must be hallowed. He's glorious. He's different than us. He alone is the Holy One. And he is, he is the 
the gloriously powerful king forever. Forever. All other helpers will fail and flee, but he's the God who changes never. And so that's the same confidence. Isn't this interesting? That's the same confidence that, that bolstered the prayers of, of ancient Israel. You know, when they, really need, when they were in a, a bind, and I think we talked about this in our series on the covenant, and they needed to appeal to God, they would appeal to God as the God of their fathers, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were saying, you at one time made a promise to those individuals, and we know you don't change. What you are once, you are always. You are forever. And so we join our prayers in that same way. Oh God, you've made promises. Promises that are thousands of years old. Promises that reach back into eternity. And we praise you for that. That, that we can always have confidence, confidence that, that yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Because you're the unchanging, never failing, never ceasing God. Well, I hope it's already become abundantly clear as we come to a close this evening that this doxology is practically helpful. We've seen that it's biblically faithful and theologically accurate, but it's helpful, too, in, in our prayers. How so? Well, to close our prayers in this kind of way is a really important reminder to ourselves that what we're doing works. That prayer works. That we're not wasting our time when we pray. That we're not just speaking empty words into the air. We're reminding ourselves that God is worth praying to. Why? Because he's the glorious and the powerful king. The one who alone has the authority and the ability to to rule and direct us because we're his subjects. And it's this reason that the Reformation catechisms highlight when they explain the importance of this closing doxology. So we heard earlier from the Westminster uh, larger catechism that this doxology teaches us to enforce our petitions with arguments, which are to be taken not from any worthiness in ourselves or any other creature, but from God. We have, we have reason, we have biblical argumentation to say what we're doing works. And this emboldens us, the catechism goes on to say, in regard whereof as he is able and willing to help us, so we by faith are emboldened to plead with him that he would and quietly to rely upon him that he will fulfill our requests. You see how every time we remind ourselves who God is, that he is the one who has the kingdom, the power, and the glory, that we'll realize we're not wasting our breath when we pray. Heidelberg similarly says, that the clause that doxology teaches us that we have made all these petitions of you because as our all-powerful king, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. That is so important to understand. There are many people who are willing to help in a time of need, but willingness is no guarantee of ability. He is willing, he is willing and he is able. Doubt no more. Now I wonder, you know, do you ever think in a moment of discouragement or, or honest self-reflection, why don't I pray more? 
Why don't I pray more? Uh, Part of the reason has to be that we just don't understand that it really works, that it's not a waste of time. We don't recognize that it's actually the most effective thing we could ever do in life is to engage this great God in prayer. Uh, David gets that in 1 Chronicles. Interestingly, though, David begins his prayer with doxology. He doesn't end it with the doxology, but he begins it with this doxology. But he does it for the same reason, and that's to situate himself appropriately before God. It's his reminder that God is the one who helps in time of need. And if you're still open there, you see that in verse 13. He's already given that kind of doxological theme that yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory and the strength. And then verse 13 says, and now... We thank you and we praise you. Or, or therefore, because of that, we're coming to you. Because of who you are and what you have, we come to you. Friends, you have no reason to pray at all if God is not all-glorious, if he is not all-powerful. It would be a waste of your time. You have no reason to do it. But David's confidence in being heard, and our confidence as well, is that God is all-powerful. God is all-glorious. And that's why this doxology is so helpful. Every time you praise God for who he is, you will have more, more confidence that to petition him for when you are in time of need will not be met uh, without his hearing and without his granting that petition. You see, it undergirds our confidence. I bring all these petitions because you're the only one who can do anything about it. You'll see that there can be no one else. When you get that, you'll pray more. You will pray more. And it's only when you have that view of God as the all-glorious, all-powerful king, the one who is so good to his subjects, It's only when you get that that's who God is that you could ever end a prayer saying amen. Because what does amen mean? That's one of those words that you can can tell your friends, I know Hebrew. I'm bilingual when it comes to alleluia and amen. Right? It means so be it or let it be. Let this be. Amen. You're not willing to, to say, so be it, or, or let it be to just anyone, are you? No, of course, of course not. Carrie Ann and I were watching one of those um, addicting home makeover shows a couple weeks ago. And, yeah, I just have to say we hate how much we like these shows. So, um, the moment of confession for me. The particular family that was receiving the, you know, makeover, home makeover, lifetime kind of situation, they, they film them as this person comes into the house, the interior designer, and they're all so excited to meet. And this person's doing a kitchen remodel. I think it was just for 250000 you know, something like that, pennies. And this is what they said. When $250,000 is on the line, this lady says to the interior designer... This is in Southern California. And she says, look, I love your style. I love every, I've been watching all of your shows. I love everything you've done. Here's my money. Just you do it. Whatever you want, you do it. She didn't give her any guidelines, any rules for what she wanted in this kitchen. You look at this kitchen. You look at my house. And just so be it. 
Let it be. Right? Now, are you willing to do that to just anyone? Somebody come in your house and, and they're going to do a remodel. You, hey, you know, say to the contract, whatever you want. Just go for it. Of course not, right? It depends how much you trust them. She really trusted this interior designer. Whatever you want, I will be happy with whatever you are pleased with. We're not willing to say that to just anyone. And let's be honest, sometimes we're not even willing to say it to God. Why? Because we doubt who he is. We doubt what he does. But when you realize, no, 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 no. I see him now. He's that all-glorious, all-powerful king who does all things well. Well, I can, yes, I'll lay my, my petitions before him, but at the end of the day, I, I just want to let him know, you take it from here. Whatever you want, let it be. You can only say amen in, in, in truth and in faith when you understand what this doxology is saying about God. And that can be so hard, can it? You know, we make, we make prayers for difficult things in life. And we'll close with this. We make prayers for difficult things in life. And, um, you know, maybe we see that there's there's one of two ways that this could go, and, and we're really praying for, for, you know, like door A, so to speak. And then we close the prayer with, but nevertheless, your will be done. We're kind of opening up that possibility. Door B might be what happens, and, and we say, well, well amen, let, let it be, whatever, whatever you wish. And sometimes that's so hard, we don't even acknowledge door B exists. We're not even going to, 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 to even... Address the possibility that God might allow something that we don't want to happen, happen. What do we do in those moments? How can we really get to a place where we're willing to say, amen, let it be? You look to the Garden of Gethsemane. You look to Jesus Christ. And there were two options. Option A, you know. Go to the cross. Hang there naked and humiliated and ashamed before a watching world. Uh, be, be condemned for crimes you didn't commit. And then, here's the kicker. Become the sin of God's people. You recognize that's what happened at the cross, right? Jesus wasn't crucified as though he were a sinner. God treated him as sin. Not as if he were like sin, but as sin itself, as the worst sinner that ever lived. You can't even imagine that. Jesus could, and he knew that's what door A held for him. He knew that's what was behind that door. I, if I go down this path, this is what's going to happen. It's not just that he's going to die. That's not what he was afraid of. That's not what made him shrink back. Not death, no, the curse of God curse of God, for all of your sin, past, present, and future, for all the sin of all of God's people, past, present, future, all of it placed on him, all of the blame on him. How are you at taking the blame for things? 
aren't we always so quick with an excuse for petty things, right? Your spouse is upset because you left the dishes out. That never happens in our house, right? And you come up with an excuse. Oh, sorry, I was just busy. Uh, I was going to get back to it. Or, or the kids distracted me, right? We, we just hate taking blame, and so we shift. Here, Jesus Christ goes to the cross to take all the blame of every sinner that God said, this sinner shall be mine. He takes it and he doesn't shift it at all. That's door A. Door B. I'm going to call 10,000 angels to come down, destroy this place, and we're getting out of here. He had the power to do that. And how does he pray? Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. Let it be. Amen. Jesus was willing to, to give his life, as it were, into the hands of the Father's will because he trusted. He trusted that God would do all things well. And for him, yes, it meant crucifixion, and it meant death, and it meant burial, but then it also meant resurrection, and it meant ascension. Your life will follow that same pattern, friends. You can say, let it be, God, whatever you want. You can, you can say amen at the end of your prayers because you know this is where you're heading. Will you go through tough times? Yes. Will that be the end? No. No. Where Christ is there, you will be also. And because you know that's the end of the story, you can say, well, whatever gets me from here to there, let it be, God. Martin Luther uh, wrote a hymn on the Lord's Prayer, and he devoted an entire stanza to this little word, amen. And the stanza goes like this. Amen, that is, so shall it be. Strengthen our faith and trust in thee that we would doubt not, but believe that what we ask we shall receive. Thus, in thy name and at thy word, we say amen. Now hear us, Lord. Do you recognize, friends, in this small word, we affirm a big confidence that God alone is the one who can hear us and grant us our requests. We say, let it be to the one who alone can make it so. We say, let it be to the one who can say, it shall be done. And so would we always commit our cares and causes to the Lord with such certainty and such earnestness? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had this summer to consider prayer, a gift that we often neglect, and we ask your forgiveness for that. But we do pray now that you would inspire us to greater prayer, greater devotion, because of who you are and because of what you have done. And when we forget that, we need a doxology such as we've considered tonight. We need to remember that you are the glorious king, the king of the ages, the immortal, the invisible, the only God, the blessed and only sovereign, the God who alone has immortality, the God who has glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever more the one who alone is worthy to receive glory honor power blessing and might forever and ever 
This is the reason we pray. Because you and only you can do something with our prayers. And as we look back in our own lives, as we look to the lives of other believers, as we look into your word, we see you always do all things well for your people. And so, let us never be afraid to say, let it be to you who can make it be. Let us commit our cares and causes to you in faith and in hope. In hope, knowing that even if we're called to death, you will deliver us and rescue us, and you will seat us in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. May we learn from him what it means to say, not my will, but yours be done. Yes, indeed, Lord, we now say, and all of God's people say together, amen.